Thank you everyone for being here and joining us for this uh, presentation of the BBA employment law section, labor and employment section. Um, we, uh, I am, uh, let me introduce myself and ourselves. Um, my name is David Ruskell. I'm a partner at Zolkane Duncan Bernstein. Um, I represent employees and employment law. I also uh, practice criminal defense and uh, university and uh, student rights uh, cases. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. My name is Alexandra Thaler. I'm a partner with Armstrong Teasdale, um, and I practice management side employment, um, employment law. Hi, I'm, I'm Pauline Kirian. I'm the director of the Corey and Reentry Project at Greater Boston Legal Services, where we focus on helping people seal and expunge records and dealing with collateral consequences. Great. So um, just to briefly go over what we're planning to cover today, um, we're going to go over uh, an overview of the Corey system in Massachusetts. Um, discrimination laws that are relevant to employees and their Corey rights, um, laws and best practices for employers in conducting background checks, um, and some considerations for employers and employees and um, what information they should ask for or uh, volunteer. Um, and in order to get uh, some just some context and an idea of the um, the audience and where everyone's coming from. We wanted to do a quick poll. Um, Sasha, do you want to go over that? Yep, absolutely. I, uh, we will launch a poll uh, momentarily just to give you a quick um, preview so you're not surprised. It's just two questions um, and each question gives you um, an opportunity to identify with one of four um, categories depending on whether you uh, represent employers or um, are in business yourself versus um, whether you represent employees um, uh, and basically your um, familiarity or prior um, uh, interaction with these systems. So I'm going to launch that now and we'll give everybody a minute or two to respond. Okay, so we've gotten some responses and it looks like uh, folks have slowed down their responses. I'll give you a couple more seconds if you happen to have stepped away and missed it, uh, and then we'll close the poll. All right, we got one more in. Okay, and um, I'll just, just read it real quick. Uh, it looks like the Majority of folks on the um, in the webinar today uh, primarily represent employers, and um, their businesses do in fact conduct um, background checks. A um, couple people primarily represent employees and generally do um, uh, have have had to go through the background check process. Um, we also got some people who um, responded that. Um, they uh, represent employers or are in business and they use um, a private uh, consumer reporting agency to 
provide them with background check uh, responses, but actually um, more people uh, apparently or more businesses um, of the respondents are using the Corey system itself. So that's great because we'll have a lot of information on that. Um, and then there were a couple of people also who uh, responded that their clients have in fact successfully sealed or expunged their records. Thanks everyone for participating. David, back to you. Great. Um, great. So now we're going to go over, uh, Pauline is kind enough to give us an overview of Corey and sealing and expungement. So let me turn it over to her. Uh, first off, in terms of uh, any discussion of criminal records, um, you have to talk about CORI, and in Massachusetts, that stands for Criminal Offender Record Information. And when you obtain uh, a CORI report from the Department of Criminal Justice Information Services, it's important to note that um, what's going to be on that report is only going to contain Massachusetts state court cases. So CORI uh, that you obtain from the Department of Criminal Justice Information Services does not include federal court cases uh, or cases from other states. Also things such as restraining orders and non-criminal matters such as 51A reports of, of child abuse and neglect, those also are, are not core. So those are not gonna be included you know, on the reports. So sorry about that. Just uh, um, the, other, the other thing to keep in mind is you know, the law changed in, in 2018 with a, a criminal legal reform bill that passed. Um, so in all instances, whether it's, uh, if it's a, a juvenile court case, whether it's a youthful offender case, which is a more serious matter, or it's a delinquency case, it's not gonna appear on the Cori report unless the case was transferred specifically from a juvenile session to an adult court. Um, and also the same um, applies to cases dismissed before arraignment they are not going to show up um, on a Corey report. Though it's important to note there are some statutory exceptions regarding um, juvenile records um, as well as sealed records. There are certain entities by statute that um, when, when they do send for a report from DeSegis, uh, such as the Department of Early Education and Care, they're going to get sealed records, they're going to get juvenile records as well. In terms of what the Corey report looks like that you get from DeSegis, the Department of Criminal Justice Information Services, there are different levels of access and they're found in chapter six, section 172. Uh, so if you have questions about it, whether it's somebody who's in, in installing security systems or it's uh, you know somebody who is a landlord, you can find all the particulars in, in that particular chapter. And the, the level of access depend on depends on who the requester is, um, but it's good to keep in mind that police and law enforcement always can see everything um, in terms of what's in the, the database. Um, they can even see the records sitting in their, um, their cruisers. Oops, let me go back here. So the first level of access is, oops, I don't know why, what I put here. Okay. The, I apologize for this. I don't know why my uh, laptop is quite sensitive. Uh, the first level of access is the lowest. It's called standard access. So um, what it means as a bottom line is any employer, any housing screener, any occupational licensing uh, screener is going to have at a minimum standard access. So they're going to see any cases that are still going on in court. Um, they're going to see uh, any uh, felony or misdemeanor conviction. Um, and 
Uh, the only thing is there's a special so-called holdback provision that applies to standard access. So, for example, if I have a bunch of felonies and misdemeanors from 20 years ago, and assuming they're not um, part of an exception, like for murder or manslaughter or a sex offense, um, they're going to be held back because they would be immediately sealable. Um, so it's if you haven't had any misdemeanors in the last five years and no felonies in the last 10 years, those will be held back from um, requesters who have standard access. And uh, the important point to, to remember is if, if somebody has standard access, they actually don't get the non-convictions. So if there were dismissals, they're not going to see dismissals. Obviously, they're not going to see sealed cases either. And some examples of standard access requesters are private uh, landlords, retail stores, restaurants. Okay, my next uh, slide is required level um, access one. That's basically the same as standard access. It's just the whole back provisions don't apply. So they see all the convictions and non-convictions. I mean, all the convictions and pending cases, they do not see non-convictions such as dismissals or not guilties. And they don't see um, sealed records. Examples are housing authorities, um, hospitals, healthcare agencies, banks, security system installers, amusement park operators. And then the next category is required level two. So they see all convictions again, all pending cases, uh, but they also get to see all those non-convictions. So that means the dismissals and all pros um, or not guilty finding. Um, they don't see sealed records on the report that they get, but um, they do get a lot of information in, in terms of um, uh, getting access to, to the, the, the criminal record history. So examples are like schools, nursing homes, assisted living facilities, programs for children, councils on aging, uh, military recruiters. And then the required level three and four categories are, are very specific. Level three actually only applies to summer camps. So they get to see pending cases, convictions, non-convictions, and juvenile records unless those records are sealed. And then the final category, level four, is only given to the Department of Early Education and Care, which sees um, pending cases, convictions, non-convictions, juvenile records, and sealed records. So there, there's a big difference there. Um, the thing to keep in mind is there may be other uh, background companies that you use. So if you hire a private background checking company to go and look at the local courts, obviously they can pull the file if it's not sealed. So then they could find out about those um, dismissed cases. Um, getting ready for sealing. I always uh, remind people that before you seal anybody's record, you should be getting certified copies you know, of the complaint and the docket sheet because the client may need them later um, because you no longer have access to the copies once you seal them. It's pretty easy to, to unseal them. You either have to file a motion with the court or you can send a notarized letter signed by your client to um, the commissioner of probation's office at one Ashburton place. In general, we, we always suggest that if somebody's not a citizen that they um, get a consult with an immigration lawyer. Because uh, you don't want a hearing to come up and you don't have the necessary records to prove you were found not guilty or the case didn't end unfavorably. How do you seal a, a, a criminal record? It's fairly simple and, and most records by and large can be sealed. There is a mail-in process through the commissioner of probation. Um, and now that COVID's over, you can actually hand deliver the, the petition. Um, but there are waiting periods. So if you have a past uh, felony conviction, the, the wait is seven years. If you have um, a three-year waiting period for a misdemeanor, um, that will also apply. Um, and then if you want to, if you want to actually seal a decriminalized marijuana offense, there's no waiting period whatsoever, and it can be done all on the on the same uh, form. And then there's an alternative process for cases that ended favorably, and that's through um, the court system where the where the case occurred. So a judge could seal a dismissal and all pros or not guilty uh, finding um, disposition. And the process is free. Um, I, there aren't a lot of uh, employee lawyers, and I'm just going to go through this 
rather quickly because we also don't have a lot of time. Um, so the process is free and it is basically an all or nothing process. So if I've got cases that are 50 years old, but I have a conviction from yesterday, uh, I'm not going to be able to seal anything through this process until the, the most recent waiting period is, is completed. And you have to use the correct form. If you've surfed the internet, there's all kinds of older forms out there and they will summarily reject it. And then the most important point is you cannot have any open cases going on with the court. Everything has to be closed. You can't be on probation. The case has to be completed. Um, and then a caveat, uh, the felony larceny threshold, which is the point at which a, a felony offense, I mean, a, a larceny offense becomes a felony, was increased from $250 to $1,200. Um, they don't screen for that. So if, for those people representing clients sealing their records, if that doesn't get sealed, um, you just need to contact them and then point out that, you know, that um, the amount was under $1,200 because that's the threshold. So the, the change affects is, uh, sealing of records. Um, sealing juvenile records, um, you can use the same form. And as I indicated before, um, it's, it's a fairly simple form. You can just check off a box. Process is free. Um, and it's the same form. You mail it in. And there is a three-year waiting period for juvenile cases. Uh, the only thing that happened last year was a change was um, the commissioner's office decided that juvenile records should be treated as adult offenses um, if they involved a youthful offender as opposed to just a straight delinquency charges. Um, a lot of us who do ceiling thought that the misreading of a law, so I've actually filed a mandamus action in the SJC, so we'll have to wait and see what happens with that. But if anybody has juvenile records, you can feel free to reach out to me if you're dealing with a case. Uh, this is a form. Uh, it's, again, it's checking off some boxes and um, also making sure your client signs it the requisite numbers. If you're sealing juvenile as well as adult records, you're going to want to sign it three times as opposed to just once. But the rest is pretty self-explanatory. And the waiting periods, as I mentioned, um, uh, the, the, there's three and seven years for uh, sealing for adult cases, and they start either from the date uh, you were found guilty or um, the date of the disposition or the release from incarceration, whichever was later. And then there are special exceptions, restraining order violations that ended in a conviction or a 258 e-harassment order, even though they're misdemeanors, they have a seven-year waiting period. And then for sex offenses, you basically can't seal any sex offense convictions that require being registered um, in the sex offender registry until 15 years after the last event in the case, which may be uh, released from supervision or parole or incarceration. Um, uh, and, and then uh, the other thing about sex offenses is that if you were ever a level two and three sex offender, the statute specifies you can never seal those um, offenses if they were convictions. Um, there was a constitutional challenge um, to the to the, the permanent non-sealable status, uh, and so if you can show that the law is unconstitutional as applied applied to your client, you'd be able to seal. But obviously, that's that's beyond sending in a sealing petition. Um, and then we also have in Massachusetts these antiquated, never sealable public justice crimes, things like witness intimidation, escape from jail, um, bribing a public official, uh, and certain firearms offenses can never be sealed. So if you you get a form back and it indicates certain things weren't sealed, that, that may be the reason. But the, the rejection letter will usually cite the, the statute, so then you can, you can check that. Um, moving along to cases that can be sealed in court without waiting. You know, as I mentioned before, a judge has the power to seal certain um, criminal cases um, that ended favorably. Unfortunately, um, this doesn't apply to juvenile cases. It only applies to, um, it only, it only applies to adult cases. So if you have an adult case um, and you were found not guilty or it's dismissed or null pros, meaning it was dropped by the DA, um, you could file a petition with the court. There's no waiting period, there's no fee, and you can ask the court to um, seal the record then and there. And uh, there's also an exception under another a statute under uh, uh, Chapter um, 94C, and that uh, 
provides that anybody with a first-time drug possession conviction, we're not talking about distribution, they didn't violate uh, probation or other conditions, they also can um, seal that record with, without um, a waiting period you know, once, once it's wrapped up. Um, I'm not going to belabor the court process because I think uh, most people on this Zoom are, um, are representing, um, oops, sorry about that, um, are, are representing employers. Uh, but the process to seal is fairly simple. It's you file a petition and you're going to have either one or two hearings. They may require a preliminary hearing. And again, it's, it's restricted to district court, superior court, Boston municipal court cases. Nothing out of state, nothing, um, uh, no federal court cases as well. And then this is the form um, that you fill out with your client's information, docket numbers. And then if you really have a long query, then you can keep going on the, on the next page. And the legal standard to seal criminal records is, um, has, has uh, been reduced. It was a case that I brought for a client to uh, change the legal standard, which used to the we had case law that used to say, rarely can you seal. Now the standard is good cause. And so what good cause means is you have to show there's some disadvantage that flows um, you know, from the records. Um, either at the present time or, or would uh, flow at the at the at a future time, and the, the case is a pretty fabulous Commonwealth versus Pawn. And it says basically there's a compelling government interest in sealing cases, and also in parents being able to support um, their children. Um, and the, the court also said that regardless of what um, a criminal record contains, it can present barriers to housing and employment opportunities. And in the old days, we had to show some sort of causation between the offense and the person's unemployment, and they agreed with us that was unrealistic. So now you just have to, you, you just have to show that there's a plausible relationship between the quarry availability and potential rejections or disadvantages. And some of the disadvantages are common sense, risk of unemployment, housing problems, use of Corey in a particular profession, um, you know, denial or impeded participation in volunteer activities, the time since the offense, sobriety, rehabilitation efforts, you know, the nature of the offense, the reason for the disposition. Um, moving then along, uh, folks wanted me to also cover expungement, so I apologize. I'm going to talk quickly because I see my, my time is almost running out. So um, expungement is different than sealing because when you seal, it basically uh, just uh, shields the records from access from certain individuals, whereas ex expungement actually destroys all of the records. Um, but it's not necessarily a smart idea to go and expunge your client's uh, records um, because um, you know, the FBI records often have offenses on the front end, but they don't have the final disposition. So if you needed for your immigration case and you went ahead and destroyed the record and you don't have a copy, you're going to be in a, in a lot of uh, difficulty there. And it may be that you want it for a, a police brutality case or you're trying to get some Annie Dukin fees back or something along those lines. Annie Dukin had to do with the, the drug scandal from seven uh, several years ago, and then there was a subsequent scandal where they threw out over 25,000 cases um, um, be because of, of fraud related to the to the records um, and the dispositions. Uh, with expungement, there are basically two kinds of expungement. Um, there's special expungement for juvenile records and folks who had an adult offense before age 21, but don't get too excited about it. It's limited to people who only have up to two cases on their record. Um, and um, and then there are um, almost like countless exceptions and exclusions. So I think uh, since the law was enacted in 2018, I've probably had one client who was eligible. Uh, in Section 100K expungement is for both adult and juvenile cases without any age restrictions or anything. But it's limited to... I, identity fraud, um, impersonation uh, of a person by another uh, individual, decriminalized cases, errors by law enforcement, court staff, 
and witnesses. And there's also another provision for um, fraud on the court. Um, again, there's there's no f- a fee. If you're using the juvenile uh, ceiling statute, you send the petition to it starts out in the in the um, juvenile. Uh, it starts out in the commissioner of probation's office. That's where you send it. Um, and then if they don't find that you're you're ineligible, then it's going to the next step will be it will go to the court for a hearing. And this is the form for juveniles. Um, and it's um, pretty self-explanatory. And then quickly going through Section 100K expungement, which uh, is the statute we use the most. Um, there's Again, there's no fee. You file it in the court that handled the case you're trying to expunge. Um, and there'll be a court hearing if either you as the petitioner or the district attorney ask for a hearing. And the court has discretion to expunge based on what's in the best interests of justice. Um, if they find that based on clear and convincing evidence, the record was created as a, as a result of the six types of conduct, meaning the false identification, unauthorized use, decriminalized offenses, demonstrable errors by law enforcement witnesses. It could be any Dukin case if it was an expert witness. Um, other errors by court employees and then fraud on the court. And this is what the form looks like. And typically we file affidavits in support of these petitions when we file them. And then one uh, quick thing is um, last summer, oops, I'll try to finish this up quickly. Last summer, the legislature um, passed an, um, an amendment to the expungement statute. So now for decriminalized marijuana offenses, um, they have to be um, expunged within 30 days of filing the petition. And in addition, um, if you have a distribution charge that arose out of the possession, like you were in charge with intent for, uh, to distribute when you, you were caught with marijuana at the time when it was illegal, because it arose out of the, the first event, they can, the court can also um, expunge that offense. So that took effect in November 2022. And it basically essentially removes the discretion of judges to deny these petitions. And the reason that the legislature um, passed this bill was initially um, those of us who do um, record ceiling expungement, we were finding that um, some judges didn't want to expunge anything or in particular, they didn't want to expunge marijuana offenses. So the legislature uh, uh, took care of that problem. Meantime, at the same time, the the legislature was um, going through its processes and re- reviewing legislation and enacted the bill. Uh, there was a case called Commonwealth versus KW. I had actually filed an appeal where I had somebody who um, had been denied uh, um, expungement of three really old, ancient, um, decriminalized offenses. And we got a great decision for the SJC, and it's also broader than just marijuana expungement cases. It basically says that if you basically uh, have the threshold standing, meaning that your case was decriminalized or, um, for example, um, somebody used your identity, then there's a presumption. So you have to show a strong countervailing reason as to why it shouldn't be expunged in terms of the judge either using discretion to deny it or the DA's office um, opposing it. And having other offenses on your record is not a reason. That was one of the the things that they clarified in the decision. And also a perceived lack of benefit of expungement, like, oh, it's just one little marijuana offense and you've got other things in your history. That's not a reason to deny the petition. So um, this is my last slide, so I'm going to end here. Um, once, you, once you've sealed your records, you are allowed, um, you're allowed to say, I have no record when you, apply for, when you apply for employment, when you apply for housing, or any kind of occupational licenses. And then the, the clerk's office and probation have to report no record exists unless they're dealing with somebody from law enforcement or some kind of uh, entity that has special access under the statutory scheme. So I'm going to stop sharing. Let's see. Okay, and I apologize for going a few minutes over, but I'm trying as quickly as possible to get through the agenda.
thank you, Pauline, uh, for covering so much on that. Um, now we're going to move on to uh, criminal history discrimination and the state and federal laws that come into play on that issue um, in terms of employees' rights. So the first one uh, has to do with pre-employment Corey inquiries. Um, the, the more simple and straightforward one is the ban the box statute. Um, before this law was passed, some employers would require an employee or, or an applicant to um, disclose on the initial application if they had convictions, and if they did, then they might just disregard those applications. Um, in, in Massachusetts, employers can't do that anymore. Um, employers can't make any inquiry about Corey uh, on the initial written application. So the ban the box statute only applies to the initial written application. Um, if other laws permit, then employers can make inquiries later in the process. The idea is that applicants should be able to get their foot in the door, um, be able to start going through the process so that if there have to be inquiries or disclosures, at least the uh, applicant has a chance to explain or uh, address concerns of the employer. Um, there are some exceptions, like if certain convictions would disqualify an applicant from employment under federal or state laws or regulations. So um, if someone has been convicted of fraud, that might disqualify them from working in a bank uh, under federal regulations or something like that. If that's the case, then an employer can ask that upfront because um, if they're not going to be able to, to pass that criterion and it's set by law, then they can do that. Um, and this statute is enforced by the MCAD. Um, a related provision, um, but a little broader, uh, is Chapter 151B, Section 49. Um, employers cannot ask employees about certain categories of uh, criminal history information. Um, where uh, what, charges where there where no conviction resulted. Um, if someone was arrested, detained, or a disposition, there was no conviction, um, then employers can't ask the applicant about that. Um, first conviction for uh, minor offenses like traffic violations, speeding, simple assault, drunkenness, um, misdemeanors that are more than three years old, um, and sealed or expunged records. Um, employers can't ask about these things. If an employer does ask uh, illegally, then the applicant can decline to disclose that and they can't be charged with false statements or perjury, even if it's something that they have to answer um, under penalties of perjury or something like that. Um, this is also enforced by the MCAD. Now, it's important to, to recognize the limitations of this statute. It is uh, focused on what employers can ask of applicants or employees. Um, the SJC interpreted this statute in 1991, a decision called Bynes, um, and the, the court clarified that it protects employees from having the employer ask them for criminal history information. Employers can seek information from other sources. Um, for instance, from if, if the Corey report they request includes this information, um, then they can act on it uh, if that would be otherwise permissible. Um, there was a subsequent unpublished appeals court decision where um, an employer got information from newspaper report, from police reports, from court records, um, and the, the courts held that, um, that this statute didn't address that situation, that this is just about disclosure um, and, and about requesting it from the employee. Um, and that was the MCAD view at the time, um, and the statute has not changed much since uh, since the SJC interpreted it in 1991. Um, the only real addition is um, adding sealed or expunged records as a category that employers can't ask for. Um, MCAD has not uh, addressed this statute very much. Um, they determined that it applies to juvenile records as, as well as adult records, but hasn't done much uh, since then. Um, I, I would caution folks, though, that having the statute uh, on the books is a, a sign that employers should tread carefully in using this type of information, even if they do get it permissibly. 
um, the legislature uh, by saying these are things that shouldn't be asked about is giving a signal that uh, maybe these are things that employers shouldn't necessarily base employment decisions on. And so there could be an argument that if um, if employers do act on this information, that it might be a pretext for other reasons. Um, the, uh, the, the final uh, law or body of law that comes into play here um, addresses criminal history kind of obliquely, um, and that is more general uh, discrimination and particularly disparate impacts. Um, both state and federal laws protect against uh, practices that have disparate impacts on protected classes. Um, and the EEOC under Title VII has given pretty specific uh, guidance on how they see things. Um, and they particularly noted that because of disproportionate arrest and incarceration rates, um, particularly in Black and Hispanic communities, um, and they, they focused in on Black and Hispanic men, um, that can lead to an unequal impact of quarry checks, even if it and, and disparate impact means the practice can be neutral on its face, but in how it's applied, it has a disproportionate effect on these communities. Um, it's, uh, it also certainly can be that there could be disparate treatment um, based on protected characteristics. If an employer is willing to overlook a criminal history from a white applicant, but uh, discards an application from a black applicant for the same charge, that would be disparate treatment. Um, but the EEOC guidance focuses a lot on uh, when is it permissible to uh, take uh, criminal history into account. And um, basically, they say that any inquiries that have to be made uh, or that employers want to make have to be job related and consistent with business necessity. Um, if there isn't a particular reason, if it's not related to the job, if it's, if it's not necessary for the business, then the EEOC says, well, if you can't defend that decision, then there's kind of a background that it's going to have a disparate impact on these communities. Um, there are ways for an employer to rebut that. Um, an employer could show uh, local data showing that, well, maybe nationally it's a problem, but here there isn't a disproportionate impact or look at our applicant pool, and for us specifically, we're not having a disparate impact on these groups. Um, but on the other hand, the EEOC says that they can consider whether um, an employer has a reputation for conducting criminal background checks and whether that would discourage certain applicants from applying, and that could skew the numbers. Um, any uh, any decision based on criminal history, um, according to the EEOC guidance, has to uh, be individualized and fact-specific. It has to consider factors like the nature of an offense, the time since the offense was committed, and um, the specific job descriptions, uh, job requirements and responsibilities. So one example that the uh, EEOC cites is a Third Circuit case called L, where uh, a bus driver, um, they learned, had been convicted of murder 40 years ago when he was 15. Um, in that case, the court had misgivings about it, but affirmed summary judgment for the employer because of the severity of the offense. But they said it might have been different if there had been expert evidence about recidivism or the risk that um, that individual did or didn't pose, um, but that wasn't presented. Um, the uh, EEOC also draws a distinction between conviction records which can generally be relied upon as evidence that the offense was committed, and arrest records, which often don't necessarily show what the disposition of the charge was um, and can't be relied upon the same way. So if an employer learns of an arrest, then they can ask the person about it, look at the individual facts and circumstances, um, and uh, inquire into the underlying facts. Um, so the EEOC says across the board exclusions are problematic, need an individualized assessment of the situation. Um, and even if an employer shows that its policy concerning criminal history is um, job related and uh, necessary for the business, and a plaintiff under Title VII 
can still uh, get past that if they show that there was a less discriminatory alternative um, that was available that the employer was not using. Um, and we haven't had this kind of detailed guidance from the MCAD, but um, the chapter 151B also prohibits uh, discrimination that causes a disparate impact. And so um, we could expect that the MCAD would look at the, M at the EEOC guidance um, and uh, apply, maybe not apply it directly, but look at it as, as persuasive authority um, in applying chapter 151B. And David, did you want to, do you want me to jump in here? Or, um... Yeah, yeah. So now I think I'll turn it over to you, Sasha. Sorry. And we can look at the employer requirements. Yep. Great. I think you've, you've got the slides. So if you can, oh, actually, David, if you wouldn't mind, just keep the slides on and I'll. Oh, yeah, sure. Advance. Sorry about that. Great. Um, yeah, so at a high level, um, we wanted to reference the fact that Massachusetts did have um, a, the Cory law that went into effect um, in the 2010s, I believe it was 2012. Um, and as part of that, and, and certainly that's a lot of what um, Pauline talked about, but as part of that, there are specific um, requirements on employers that um, uh, inquire into criminal history. And these uh, requirements apply regardless of whether you're using the DCJS system, um, the CJS, I think as Colleen called it, um, directly, or if you're using a consumer reporting agency, a CRA. Um, so, for example, um, the uh, regulations that uh, attended the um, the new law required um, documentation retention, but also destruction uh, protocols be put in place, uh, limitation on what term dissemination of information. In other words, um, uh, folks in the business who may have a need to know the criminal history information are allowed to access it. Uh, but beyond that, there are restrictions on to whom that information can be disseminated. And so one question I get uh, fairly often it, from employers um, is they're working with a client. Perhaps one of their own employees needs to go on site at the client and the client is asking either in advance in some sort of um, uh, business to business agreement that they're entering into, um, or in the moment they're asking for um, a certification of some sort um, that would confirm that the client's employees don't have a criminal record or suggesting that they um, are entitled to see the criminal history, uh, you know, CRA reports or criminal history of individuals who are going to be coming on the premises um, of the client's own clients. And, um, the, you know, the question I get is, oh, can, can we hand that information over? And I, I always caution, um, almost certainly not, um, partly because of these restrictions and, and partly because of confidentiality considerations more broadly. Um, uh, the one other aspect of the um, regulations that I wanted to point out is that they do require an employer that does at least five background checks, criminal history checks per year to maintain a policy that is compliant with um, what the agency has issued as its model policy. Um, that um, requirement applies again to employers doing criminal history checks, regardless of whether they're through the Cori system directly or through a CRA. Um, it is. It can be a little bit um, uh, daunting to figure out how to apply that policy because the model policy is written um, very specifically with the Cori system in mind. Um, but it is important to understand that employers are supposed to have a policy in place. Um, and, um, and in some cases, if a decision is going to be made based on the existence of um, an adverse criminal history, that policy has to be provided to the individual, and I'll get to that um, shortly. Um, and uh, piggybacking off of what David was just talking about, the regulations do require that um, individualized factors be taken into consideration before an adverse decision is made, and they are um, very similar in, in a lot of ways to some of the factors um, that the EEOC um, points to. So um, things like you know the age of the conviction, 
um, and um, the age of the candidate at the time of the conviction, um, whether, um, you know, how serious the offense was, um, any suggestion of rehabilitation, um, et cetera. And these are specifically listed in the model policy that's offered by the DCJS. Um, and then there is a, a documentation requirement, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more. And David, next slide, please. Um, so before I get to that, sort of before you do the check, you do have to, um, if you're going to do it through the Corey system, there's an acknowledgement form that has to be completed um, for each um, subject. You have to uh, confirm that you verify the subject's identity. Um, they have to sign it. And the requester, meaning, um, you know, for example, the employer has to confirm that it's complying with the laws and regulations um, applicable to seeking Corey. And I do want to point out that under the Massachusetts um, Corey statute, those authorizations are only good for one year. Um, uh, where it, that, that is a change from, from the existing law, which uh, allowed sort of an evergreen form to be completed. So um, authorizations for getting Corey information from the uh, decegis um, are only good for a year. Next slide. Um, and um, again, the Corey regulations um, also require certain documentation at the time uh, that an employer receives uh, criminal history information and is considering making an adverse decision, meaning not hiring a person. Um, and these are spelled out in, in some detail in these slides, but um, in particular note that um, uh, the uh, subject is to be given a copy of the report and um, a summary of rights um, that is published by the FTC and um, certain certain additional information also has to be included that is more specific than what the um, Fair Credit Reporting Act, the federal statute provides. Um, so again, do note that for employers with operations in Massachusetts, there's a little bit more that needs to be done here. Um, uh, and then next slide. Um, and as I mentioned, the FCRA also has some similar requirements for documenting decision-making after the employer has received criminal history information. Um, so uh, I'll get to that in a moment, but <laughs> given that I, I put the uh, the initial steps first, here, I'll turn to those first, which is um, under the federal statute, there is also a, a pre-report um, uh, um, documentation requirement. It is very specific, and, and many of you may have encountered this in the past or seen it in the news, is a requirement to provide a disclosure of the intent to conduct a background check on the applicant for employment. And um, the applicant also must uh, uh, provide a signed authorization. Um, what I mean when I say it's very particular is that the disclosure has to be in writing and it has to be in a standalone document. And um, so, for example, it can't be on the same document as um, an employment application or other documentation that an individual is getting as they're going through the process. Um, the only other thing that can be on the same document is the authorization itself. It's phrased a little bit confusingly, but you can either have a disclosure document that is standalone and a separate standalone authorization document, or you can have them both in one document, but that's it. Um, and where we see businesses get in trouble, um, and particularly when they use the CRA, uh, who you might think um, this is literally their job and they should know how to do it, but oftentimes they don't. Um, the, the use of a disclosure document that includes extraneous information beyond really the most narrow thing you could imagine, which would be, you know, maybe a description of like what the check will, will entail. Um, so things like, you know, having the individual uh, agree that they're waiving the right to um, sue the business for obtaining uh, background check information, um, or maybe even um, agreeing that they are allowing third parties to provide background information to the employer. You know, these kinds of things could really end up uh, making the disclosure document um, violate the requirements here. And that can lead to um, class-wide liability because presumably you're using the same disclosure document for literally every applicant you are working with. Um, next slide. Um, and then as I as I previewed, similarly to uh, the requirements under the Corey statute, there is a requirement uh, to provide certain disclosures under the FCRA if the employer is making an adverse decision based on 
um, a consumer a consumer report, excuse me. Um, the Corey certainly deals specifically with criminal history. Um, the FDRA speaks a bit more broadly of, of background checks, which could include some other information. Um, so, you know, that's one reason why these um, documentation may be different. But it's important to note that before you make um, a decision and communicate that decision, there is um, specific information that needs to be um, provided. Um, and in particular, as David was talking about, also considerations that the employer should be taking into account before getting to the point of actually making the decision. And then next slide. Um, and then under the FCRA, there is a follow-up obligation to um, issue further information once a decision has been made. Um, it is contemplated that the pre-adverse action decision would provide the individual with some time to respond and potentially provide additional information. And then after um, the time has passed for, for that to be considered, the employer would uh, presumably make uh, a decision one way or the other. And if that decision is adverse, um, that also must be, um, uh, the, the individual must be notified of that as well. And uh, the additional information uh, referenced on this slide also has to be provided. Great. So then the uh, last things that we wanted to discuss before we get to Q&A, if we have a little bit of time for it, um, is just kind of more generally best practices um, for should employers or when should employers be conducting background checks and seeking out uh, criminal history information, and um, when should applicants or employees who um, you know, may have uh, criminal history on their record, when should they go ahead and disclose that proactively as opposed to, to waiting and seeing? Um, so, Sasha, what, what's your perspective on uh, when it makes sense for employers to uh, include this as part of their hiring process? Yeah, I think there are some categories of employees um, for whom this uh, some sort of background check makes a lot of sense. And I'm not necessarily speaking about um, the sort of types of employers that Pauline was referencing may have access to different levels of information, but just more specifically within an organization, there may be some employees who have um, access to um, uh, funds, the, the funds of the business. Um, it may make sense to have a higher level of background check for those individuals because, you know, again, <laughs> if you're giving that kind of access, um, you know, there's certainly more risk. Um, employees who may be um, acting autonomously, particularly, as I mentioned, on the premises of a client or customer um, and without supervision of others, you know, an installer of some sort of um, equipment, something like that, that might that might make a lot of sense, um, even if it's not actually required uh, for the business to be conducting that kind of background check, um, it, you know, as a, as a matter of state law, because it's a different type of uh, business. Um, Employees who have to um, drive for their work. Um, that's another one where I see frequently employers um, wanting to confirm that there's not any sort of um, driving, um, you know, issue, <laughs> you know, whether it's um, DUIs or, or those kinds of issues, um, because certainly it doesn't make, you know, it, it can be problematic if that sort of um, pops, pops up um, uh, pretty early on. Um, employers um, also will come to me about, and maybe David, you're going to cover this as well, but um, uh, the question comes up now about, um, you know, testing and um, that, can, that can sort of um, get rolled into, uh, into some of these issues, right? Drug testing and that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, sometimes it makes sense to do one, but not the other um, as opposed to both. Great. And so from an employee perspective, um, I think some of the same factors that Sasha was talking about go into when it makes sense to kind of get ahead of things and disclose something proactively. If it's going to be a position where you're handling money, where you're particularly trusted, um, where you're going to be driving, and there's something on your record that, that may be related to that or that an employer would be, uh, you'd expect to be worried about if it came up, then that's a situation where it might make sense to proactively say, you know, this is this is going to come up. I want you to know about that. Um, I think employers would appreciate being honest and forthcoming uh, in situations like that. 
Um, but it does depend on a case-by-case basis. Um, many employers don't conduct background checks or will let an, uh, let an applicant, should be letting an applicant know if they're going to do that. Um, and then an applicant can make a decision at that point, well, you know, okay, I, I've been informed of my quarry rights. I know what's on my record. I know how old it is. I know how, you know, if it's been sealed or not. I can you know, go look at the requester types and know whether this should come up, if it's going to come up on a quarry report. Um, and so do I expect the employer to see this or not um, and make a decision based on that? If you expect the employer is going to find out about this information, then it makes sense to, to get ahead of it and make uh, and, and have a chance to disclose it on your own terms and be able to address the specifics of it. Um, which, as we discussed, employers should be doing anyway, but just to make sure that um, that they don't think that the applicant is is trying to hide the ball or something. Um, but one thing that one other thing to keep in mind, though, is uh, if employers are getting information from a CRA as opposed to from DCGIS, uh, different information might show up. So a record that's been sealed and wouldn't come up on a quarter report might still be in a CRA's database. Or if they send someone out to a courthouse and they find an old uh, record that wouldn't show up on, on a CGIS report, um, that can still be there. So you can, you, you, an employee can be better informed based on what's in the quarry law, but they can't 100% rely. I know exactly what an employer is going to see. I agree with all of that, David. And it's making me um, think of two other points I wanted to, to share from the employer perspective. One is I actually, um, I find that employers, at least that I work with, tend to be open to the idea of thinking through whether a particular, um, you know, item in somebody's criminal history is really disqualifying. What tends to turn them off is they see, is if they feel like they have been misled. And so to your point, um, it is, um, it really can be critical to think um carefully about whether it's it's better to get ahead of something because if you don't and it comes out anyway, you could be in a position where you're perceived to be um, lying. <laughs> and, you know, separate and apart from one's criminal history, employers will often feel much more empowered to say, we would have, we would have been okay with this, but we are not okay with somebody who comes at us dishonestly. Um, and that ends up being, you know, a motivating factor for for declining. Um, and the other thing I wanted to mention as a cautionary note and, and um, to employers is to David's point precisely, which is reports, um, CRA reports often will have um, uh, information um, that uh, is either inaccurate, which of course you may not know, but that's part of the reason why you're supposed to provide a pre-adverse action notice to give the candidate an opportunity to say, actually, there's an error here. Um, but also may include information that um, you may not be able to make a, a decision on, um, whether through inadvertent, you know, error by the CRA or because of some um, applicable um, state law. So um, it is um, it is uh, recommended um, that you discuss um, uh, making a decision or considering making a decision on criminal history information before acting on that, so that you don't end up in a situation where you know something and you you can't do anything about it, or if you do, you've gotten in trouble because of it. Great. Um, so we have a little bit of time for Q&A. Um, there is uh, one question that's been submitted. Um, does the panel have further thoughts on employers checking credit reports? It's always seemed off to me that debt would potentially lead to an assumption that someone would steal. Um, Sasha, what are your thoughts on that? In my practice, I tend to discourage employers from doing a credit check unless the person, as we talked about, is going to be have access to, you know, cash or or the funds of the business. Um, there, uh, I could I can see the argument for why even those people, you know, it's not necessarily the case that that um, you know means that the person would steal. Um, but I think uh, I think that is that makes more sense um, than some folks, um, you know, whose whose positions may only have them incidentally, um, you know, having any contact. Great. Um, 
if uh, anyone has any other questions, you can submit it through the, the Zoom system. We've got a minute or two. Um, Otherwise, um, thank you to all of you for attending. Thank you to uh, Sasha and Pauline for participating in this. Um, this has been uh, really helpful. We're glad we were able to do this. I just want to jump on and say thank you so much to our panel and thank you so much to our audience for joining us. Have a wonderful afternoon. Gee, thanks.